Life After Bresco miniseries part three, imposing conditions as a prerequisite to enforcement of an adjudication decision. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, this is the third podcast in a series dealing with practical implications of Michael J. Lonstar Electrical Limited against Bresco Electrical Services Limited in liquidation of those seeking to enforce or resist enforcement of adjudication claims brought by insolvent companies after Bresco. I'm David Sortel, and I'm joined by Marion Smith QC, uh, John Dennis Smith, and Rebecca Drake. And we're all members of the commercial and construction team at 39 Essex Chambers, and we're all experiencing adjudication and adjudication enforcement proceedings. And in this episode, we are going to look at the court's approach to undertakings and conditions as a prerequisite before getting that all-important high court judgment enforcing the adjudicator's decision. So let's have a quick recap first. We know the Supreme Court decision in Lonsdale and Bresco was handed down on the 17th of June 2020. In that case, the Supreme Court took a different approach to the TCC and the Court of Appeal and said that adjudicators did have jurisdiction to determine construction disputes brought by insolvent companies. It specifically said that allowing such adjudications wasn't an exercise in futility. So what's happened since? We've had the first significant first instance decision, John Doe and Erith refusing enforcement of an adjudicator's decision where the claimant was in insolvent liquidation. Let's look at the scenario. A quick recap on that too. We're dealing with Sparky, the subcontractor, Employer Co, who we are advising the main contractor. Three retail parks. We know that there are issues in relation to the first and second retail park, but in relation to the third retail park, having gone into insolvent liquidation, Sparky, through the, with the support of Calculus Limited, brings an adjudication. In that adjudication, it obtains a declaration that it's entitled to an order for payment of £350,000, and it seeks to enforce that. During the process leading up to the determination of a summary judgment application, conditions, undertakings are discussed and specific undertakings are offered by Sparky. Let's look at those. So, John, uh, we've got these conditions that they've offered. So they've agreed to pay the adjudicator's sum into a separate bank account that's going to be ring-fenced for the purpose of holding it until the final resolution of dispute. They're also relying on a policy of ATE insurance. Uh, it's been provided by InsurerCo. You know, they say it's going to pay out if EmployerCo win at trial. As a cap, this policy, £1 million. Also, InsurerCo have a lien in respect of their premium and any costs paid out uh, this is leading in respect of any recovery from employer co. But do you think, John, has Sparky proposed adequate conditions? Um, if they haven't, uh, what do you think the employer co can propose in response? The starting point is that the conditions have to place employer co in a similar position to the one that it would have been in if Sparky were solvent. And that principle is stated in both the John Doyle decision and the Meadowside decision 
uh, which preceded it. So one has to judge the two elements offered, the ring fencing and the ATE policy, against that standard. In principle, you can have ring fencing, or look at that first, uh, as an adequate condition. And the case that gives an example of that is an undertaking given in the Meadowside case. And in that case, uh, there was a witness statement from the liquidators of the claimants that was bringing the enforcement proceedings. And they undertook that they would ring fence any sums paid by the defendant as a result for a period of six months. And should the defendant issue proceedings within those six months to overturn the decision, that undertaking would continue until the proceedings by the defendant were concluded and that the money that was being ring fenced would be repaid to the extent that the defendant successfully overturned the adjudication decision. Hey, that's an undertaking, John, but do you have any more detail about how these things work? At the moment, we don't have a decision which actually does consider how such an undertaking should be implemented in adjudication enforcement proceedings. And one point to be aware of in this problem question is that the offer is being made here by calculus and not by Sparky's liquidators. So the first point is that an assurance by someone other than a liquidator could be treated differently given that liquidators have obligations by statute, uh, which might mean that an undertaking from them has a, a cogency and a, a force which is not the case for a funder. And in this case, there's also a second point, which is that there's a lien in favour of another entity, Insurico, and that leaves open the question of how the money is going to be securely placed in the account. So I think there are a number of points for Employco to follow up. The first is to obtain financial information and to ask for it in relation to calculus, the first question is really, how much is calculus is undertaking really worth? The second is to insist that if there's going to be an undertaking, it should be given by Sparky's liquidators. And the third is to ask for details about the mechanics of how the ring fencing is supposed to work in practice, A, given that it's an undertaking so far been offered by calculus, and B, in the light of the lien in the AT policy. Does the ring fencing place in Ployoko in a similar position to the one in which it would be were Sparky to be solvent? There are obviously concerns that I've raised already. Another is that the period for which the amount is going to be ring fenced hasn't been indicated yet. And if you look at the Meadowside decision at paragraph 133, for those who want to look it up, uh, you actually see a reference there to a period in the order of six months being adequate and appropriate in most cases, but uh, it may be dependent, of course, on the complexity of the underlying dispute. So Employerco first has to take into account the fact, as I've already stated, also has to work out how long it thinks it's going to need to put its claims forward on the merit itself. And it also needs to look at the amount of the, uh, the undertaking that's uh, in respect of the ring fencing, because it's not clear at the moment whether that £350,000 
in terms of the ring fencing uh, is only the principal amount uh, and whether it covers adjudicators' fees, costs of enforcement proceedings, and so on. So one way of looking at this might be to say that one should be trying to get a payment into court. The question in respect of the ATE policy in particular is going to be, does that policy provide, and the the phrase is, sufficient protection for the defendant? And the decision in John Doyle by Mr Justice Fraser relies heavily on a court of appeal decision in a case called Premier Motor Auctions. If you read John Doyle, you'll see there's quite a bit of citation from that decision. So when one goes to the AT policy, one has to, first of all, to look to see what it covers. Does it cover all the costs of proceedings or only the uh, principal amount? Does it contain limitations? For example, does it only cover Sparky's costs of bringing a claim, but not Sparky's costs of defending a claim brought by Employer Co? So, John, does the ATE policy place Employer Co in a similar position to the one in which it would have been in if Sparky was solvent? The question is whether the ATE policy provides sufficient protection for the defendant. And if you apply that test, which is set out in John Doyle, it's uh, adopted in that decision from a court of appeal decision in premier motor auctions, there are several aspects which may be a problem. But the first thing to do is to get sight of the AT policy and consider it. For instance, what costs does it cover? Does it contain limitations such as covering only Sparky's costs of bringing a claim and not Sparky's costs of defending a claim brought by Employerco? That sort of limitation was a reason in John Doyle itself for holding that the policy did not hold, did not provide adequate security. So what's the effect of the cap of a million pounds then? If the ATE policy covers both the principal sum and the cost, so that it overlaps with the security of the ring fence bank account, would that leave enough for the costs of proceedings, including the adjudicator's fees? That's an absolutely key question. Is the policy covering the principal sum and costs or just costs alone, what does it cover? Uh, because Employer Co will have to ask itself how much the proceedings are expected to cost Employer Co. And if the figure in the policy covers the principal sum, that means there's £350,000 less on that score. So Employer Co may wish to obtain an order from the court that it has liberty to apply for the amounts required by the AT policy to be increased uh, before enforcement is given. And there's a case called Balfour BT Civil Engineering versus Aztec in 2020. It's largely a case about uh, pre uh, Supreme Court in Bresco considerations. But in that case, an order was made that the party against whom enforcement was being sought could apply to the court for the cap to be varied so that as costs go up, the amount of cover has to go up. And it would make sense for Employer Co to try to obtain confirmation at the start that Insurer Co is actually going to be uh, willing to increase the cap in principle. Part of the AT insurer's uh, conditions was that fair premium, any costs that were going to be paid out, 
going to be secured by way of Leon uh, over any recovery from Employco. But John, do you think there's going to be any conflict between that and the suggestion that any recovered sum is going to be ring-fenced? On its face, a provision in the AT policy that the insurer is going to have a lien over the amount that's been uh, awarded under the uh, decision and enforcement proceedings does conflict with the offer of ring fencing. The whole point of the ring fencing is to put the money aside and it's available only for Employerco. So the first point to argue for Employerco is that the arrangements which are being proposed on behalf of Sparky are not adequate and to argue that the lien should be removed or if that isn't going to be removed, uh, the enforcement uh, should uh, be uh, rejected. Um, and that conflict um, is something that actually happened in the John Doyle case itself. If you go to paragraph 100, um, you'll see in the judgment there that in that paragraph, the conflict is raised. And in the next paragraph, that's a reason for enforcement to be refused. The second point is that calculus might say, well, that's not a problem because we are calculus and we can repay the entire enforcement amount anyway, um, even if the lien is um, applicable. Uh, but then that simply takes us one step further back to where we were before, which is to ascertain does calculus actually have the money in the first place to make good on such an undertaking. So, John, um, tell us about exclusions um, and avoidance clauses. This is a big issue and you get really into the details um, of the AT policy um, at this stage. Um, in the John Doyle case, Mr Justice Fraser held that exclusions in an AT policy can lead to a realistic prospect that cover under the policy is either going to be avoided or excluded. And a very helpful uh, citation in the judgment in John Doyle for people who are resisting enforcement is at paragraph 107, uh, where Mr Justice Fraser stated, the absence of anti-avoidance provisions and the presence of avoidance clauses will normally mean that ATE cover which includes such terms, is not adequate security. And the leading authority, which explains why, is the Premier Motor Auctions decision of the Court of Appeal, which you can see cited at paragraphs 104 to 109 of the John Doyle decision. And they have a number of factors. One of them is if the cover has been professionally placed, it will often be said on behalf of the enforcing party, there's no problem here, we're all professionals. But the Court of Appeal made the point that there can often be a difficulty that the defendant and the court may not have the information which was provided when the cover was placed, and therefore they can't judge the likelihood of avoidance. And they make the point that one knows that ATE insurers do seek to avoid their policies if they consider it right to do so. Um, the next point uh, that was made is that a party resisting enforcement must be entitled to some assurance that the insurance was not liable to be avoided for misrepresentation or non-disclosure. So one of the questions will be, does one have the placing information and who placed that information? Because if the placing information was provided by, in this case, Calculus and not by Sparky, then there might be some slippage uh, between uh, the two in terms of the information 
provided and whether it is accurate. Um, there may be a provision in which InsurAco can terminate cover if Sparky proposes to continue proceedings after InsurAco has communicated that in their view, Sparky Co is more likely to lose the dispute. So if InsurAco decides that Sparky is going to lose and tell Sparky and Sparky carries on, InsurAco may pull the plug. Well, that's a reason for rejecting an insurance policy as inadequate. It's precisely a situation like that, that EmployerCo wants to be covered. That was actually a factor in the John Doyle case. So Sparky should be trying to um, uh, push forward as best it can, but EmployerCo has to be contending that exclusion should be removed add on, and that if it can, it should be arguing that the AT policy should actually contain an anti-avoidance provision. And if you want to see what an anti-avoidance provision looks like, you can find an example in a case called Geophysical Service Centre Limited versus Daryl Schlaumberger. That's actually referred to um, in a passing in the John Doyle decision. Um, in John Doyle, uh, the case is distinguished, but if you go to the decision in Geophysical itself, you'll find an example of an anti-avoidance provision that you may want to argue should be placed uh, in the insurance policy. John, while we're being practical, can you point to any guidance as to what uh, a ring-fencing arrangement should look like? The term is an insolvency term where a portion of the assets is held back from distribution um, and you can see an instance in section 176A of the Insolvency Act. And in those cases, that's in a situation in which a prescribed part is held back from distribution to creditors with a floating charge so that it can be distributed to unsecured creditors. So in the world of liquidation, um, there is um, provision in those cases. Um, outside that world, and in this case, calculus is the party that's offering ring fencing, um, one should be quite careful and perhaps one should be actually arguing if one is an employer code's position um, that instead they should simply be offering to pay the summit to court. Now we've been talking about that and David you're can you chip in on this one because you might have some insights from other areas of insolvency and distressed companies about ring fencing. Is paying into court the answer? Is there guidance elsewhere? Exactly as John says, in section 176A, you hold back apart from distribution to creditors. You also see the term being used in cross-border insolvency, uh, where some money is held back to protect domestic creditors. You also see it in CVAs and administration to protect, in inverted commas, the company. So it's a term that's regularly used in respect of insolvency without being specifically defined, such as we would want to see uh, in a case... Uh, or I might say a novel case, uh, where you're trying to protect the adjudicated sum. Uh, so the insolvency practitioner might have an idea of what they're talking about. Uh, the lawyers might think they have an idea of what they're talking about, but you need to be sure, as employer co, that money is not going to be distributed, it's not going to end up in the funders' hands or the AT insurers' hands, and to see what exactly the undertakings proposed are going to be. And while we're talking about certainty, does it is it going to matter to employer co whether the undertaking is given by the liquidator or whether it's given by the funder calculus? 
I would say that there is a qualitative difference between an undertaking uh, given by a funder and one given by an insolvency practitioner, uh, such as a liquidator or administrator. Because we've known from cases as far ago as ex parte James, that a liquidator is an officer of the court, and they own certain obligations to the court. Uh, A funder may or may not have a solicitor uh, running the organization uh, or another professional. But it might well be the case uh, that liquidators uh, and other insolvency professionals, practitioners, uh, can give a qualitatively different undertaking than might be otherwise be the case uh, prima facie uh, by a funder. Um, The only thing I'll say about that is, of course, is you've got to make an assessment of each individual funder. And we are aware that there is a code of conduct for litigation funders, which imposes um, some pretty rigorous obligations, and many of them do subscribe to that code. And as you say, we know that many of them are also regulated professionals. And practically, if you start to make insinuations, however lightly, about the character of the undertaking that's offered, it's going to heat things up, but but maybe that's what we want to do. What do you think, David? I wouldn't necessarily want to stir the pot uh, without there being good reason, without there being uh, justification for it. But what it does show is Employico needs to be careful in the preparation of its case. Ask the right questions and make sure it gets the right answers in terms of what will happen to its money. Uh, should it go to litigation? and win and prove the adjudicator got it wrong, is it going to be assured of a return? Thanks very much for joining us for episode three of our podcast series on Bresco. If you join us for the fourth episode, we'll next be looking at the funding of adjudication enforcement proceedings brought by insolvent companies. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.